Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's still broken. And authoritative voices are going to, I think, come in and wrap everything in a narrative of recovery and wrap everything in how well we've done and how happy it is. And look at the shiny new, like, restaurants and, like, the taco trucks. I really love tacos. But there's more work to be done. And if the narrative is that that work is finished, then we're fucked. This is Death, Sex, and Money in New Orleans. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. So let's talk reality. Terry Coleman is talking to her students at Dillard University, a historically black college in New Orleans. These guys are all super smart with super big brains. This is her honors writing class. It's made up of freshmen who've come to campus early to get a head start. Um, So let's talk a little bit about perception versus reality of the storm. We're going to do the same thing we did yesterday. To Terry, this conversation about what's real and what's perceived about Katrina is a really important one. I sit down with her at her house, which is a couple of blocks from Dillard. I just got back from two years in Illinois for grad school, so kind of coming home. That's where things make sense. That's my mom. Hi, Mom. She's going to register my nephew for school. Terry's 29 years old. She has three kids. Today, she's wearing tailored, cream-colored pants with a button-down tied above her navel. Her tattoos peek out. Did you take your medicine? While we talk, there is a lot going on. Kids, parents, Terry's husband all run through the room. Gilbert's a water balloon. Gilbert's wherever you left him. There's the constant hum of TV coming up from the playroom. Please don't pop Gilbert on, on Mimi's tablecloth, because she will beat you. It's three generations in this house, but it's a big place. It sits right on the corner of a major thoroughfare in New Orleans' Gentilly neighborhood. Gentilly is a good mix of black and white. There's a lot of, in this area of Gentilly, a lot of owners and a lot of renters. But it's a lot of families, like intergenerational. So, and that's changing a little bit after the storm. It's begun to shift, and there's some things where you're like, oh, it's coming. So, like, you'll see, like, white hipsters walking their dogs, and you're just like, where are you guys coming from? Who told you? Um, and you don't say that with warmth. No, I'm, I'm really conflicted, because, like, clearly I'm here for white hipster game. Like, I like, I like fancy tacos. I like dogs. I like cool pants. Um, most of my social circle, all my social circle is hipster. A substantial of them are white transplant hipsters. Like, I like them. As individuals, as a class of people, I think they're really dangerous to the city. How do you describe, like, your family's class background? Um, I grew up really solidly middle class. Both my parents are the first generation in their families to be middle class. My grandfather and a lot of the men in that generation joined the Army, and that was the first, that was kind of like the first generation when black men in the Army could get officer status. And we were kind of, my family was lucky from color privilege. Like, if you had to have a black dude, you want the light dude. So they rose pretty high in the ranks in lots of ways. And when you say light, just to be clear, you mean fairer skin? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you guys can't, they can't necessarily see me, but it's super bright. Super yellow. (laughs) Bright, I've never heard that. You're not from here. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Ten years ago, Terry was about the same age as the students she teaches now. But she was not the kind of kid to get a jump on freshman year with a summer class. I was mostly an irresponsible jerk. I was, um, I had left Dillard the year before, and 
I had been working in the quarter, bartending, waiting tables, doing bike delivery, drinking, did a lot of drugs. I did a lot of like watching reruns of Family Guy all day long while super stoned. Yeah, I was not a useful human being. She stayed with her boyfriend most of the time. But when Katrina was approaching, Terry decided to ride it out at her parents' house. There was a lot of like talk like you should leave, we shouldn't leave, blah, 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 blah. But the year before, there had been a big evacuation. We had tried to drive to Lafayette to my aunt's house, which is normally a three, three and a half hour drive. And it took like 15 hours and it was horrible. So I refused to evacuate. I was like, no, like stop. I would rather drown. And what happened in this neighborhood? During the storm, like we, I remember I woke up the, like in the wee hours to this sound of like crashing sound, like someone throwing dinner plates, but it was the tiles from this house hitting the Sule's house next door. And so we were like peeking out the windows to watch it. And it was really like exciting and interesting. Like in retrospect, it feels really silly how we like watched the storm happen because it wasn't that big a deal. And then the next morning when the sun came out, we went outside and the street was dry. Like there were trees down and there were like power lines down and we didn't have power anymore, but it was dry. And it wasn't until later that day that we started to see water coming in. But when that happened, like, the radios all went out, cell phones went out, like, there was nothing. So we were really trapped on this little island of high ground. And so we were here for a little over a week, I think. But while we were here, it was just, part of it was because we were isolated, but also we were young. Like, I was 18 or 19, like, I didn't, like, have a brain yet. So it was just like, it was hot, it was boring, and we ran out of weed, and we ran out of booze, and like there was nothing to do. Um, we went and like, air quote, looted, I guess, the Walgreens and the Rite Aid and the grocery store and all the stuff down there. What did you take at the Walgreens? Um, well, we took water, food, um, Anastasia down the street had a little baby, so we brought diapers and formula. But for me, I was really excited because, like, as a teenage... I'm a horrible person. But, like, as a teenage girl, you go in Walgreens and, like, you know when you go down the cosmetics aisle and there's all that stuff that you want, but you, you're never going to spend $7 on mascara. That's ridiculous. You can do it. You can have it all. I had teeth whitening strips until, like, 2010. Like, <laughs> but I just... And I know that's shitty, but... They claimed it all as lost. Like, come on. They weren't going to go in there with the insurance people and see what was there and what wasn't. So you only knew kind of as far as you could see what was happening. Yeah. And there were, like, hints that they, like, there was, like, once we got out, it made sense. You know something's wrong, but you can't imagine how much wrong could be. But as the days went on, too, people started coming from back in the neighborhood and coming from the east. And so, like, these dead-eyed people would just come through, and they would say that there's water everywhere. They would say it. But we couldn't believe it, because how could you believe that? And then when we got airlifted, like that's when it kind of solidified, because they lifted us from um, Brother Martin Field, which is right across the street. And we got in the helicopter, and we went up in the air, and all of a sudden there was just, like, water. Just, like, this, like, light brown soup covering everything. And, like, like you couldn't even look to see what the streets were. Like, it was... Like, seeing an aerial map, but not being able to, like, none of the markers were there. Like, you never, like, you, you, like, think you know where trees are, but you don't know what they look like from the top. And, like, that was the moment it all, like, solidified. You were like, shit, the world died. 
So, yeah, there's that. And that was like a week after the storm? Yeah. Terry was airlifted to the interstate, where transportation out of town was being coordinated. It didn't feel very coordinated. They just dropped us off in this sea of people, just like thousands and thousands of people and trash. Lots of, like, I, I remember wondering, like, did people bring trash with them? Like, you know what I mean? Like, the, like every single person had to have brought, like, a glad bag full of just shit. Um, but it was just covered in trash and people and, like, ten porta potties. And they just set you down and you could ask questions, but no one would tell you anything. They would all, like, yell and be really mean. And then where we were, we were on, like, the underpass part, but there's an overpass above, and above us were all the media with their news crews and their cameras and lights at night, motherfuckers, and, you know, khaki vests. And they all looked really clean, just, like, kind of like this, like, weird eye in the sky, like, watching us toil like ants. Oh, my God. And it felt like you're performing desperation and being filmed with spotlights. Yeah, it wasn't fun. No. And, like, I mean, I guess there were lots of things like that. So, like, you had that when you got in the helicopter and, like, saw it. But then when we got dropped off, it was like, oh, like, it's 2005. We live in America. This exists. Reality is broken. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you can no longer reconcile things you know as truth when something's so fundamental as that. Like, you, I can't even, like, it's still, like, it still feels like something that must be made up. Because that can't happen. Like, how can that happen? Coming up, how Terry made it to safety and discovered the rest of the country considered her an outsider. I have an American passport. I was born in this country. If the rest of this country wants to call us refugees, then I want my taxes back. I want you guys to pay tariffs when you use my port. You know what I mean? Like, you can't. Citizenship isn't conditional. Those services aren't conditional. And I feel like all of that language is wrapped up in this way that the rest of the country really conveniently said, like, oh, you guys are complicated right now. Never mind. You are not of us. Which is some bullshit. People were slow to return to New Orleans after Katrina. Six months after the storm, less than half the population was back. So the people who were there, they noticed each other. Terry told me about a woman who started a demolition company after the storm. Her trademark is that her dumpsters and heavy machinery are all hot pink. There's something to be said for bright pink dumpsters. Demo Diva is the name of the company. And Terry told me, yes, the hot pink equipment is a little kooky, but it was nice to see around. It was just, like, everything was gray and covered in, like, gross silt and nastiness. So, like, the bright pink dumpsters, it's like, oh, it's a cute idea. But actually, like, experientially, it was really, really necessary. It felt good. I talked to five New Orleanians about the 10 years since Katrina for our series in New Orleans. In the next episode, you'll meet the demo diva, Simone Bruni, and hear how she went from being unemployed to running her own demolition company. Other people were already here doing demolition, but they were not marketing themselves. They'd go in, they'd hustle a deal, tear down the house and pull off. I went to all those nice sandy lots that were cleared, and I asked the homeowner if I could put my yard sign out. So within a week, I put out 100 yard signs on jobs I didn't do. 
And so, yes, fake it till you make it and keep on trucking <laughs> with a big smile. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. A week after Katrina hit, Terry was on the interstate waiting for emergency transportation. There were buses, but she didn't know where they were going. You just got on a bus. And they wouldn't let you just get off anywhere because nobody wants, like, the crazy browns in their town or whatever, like, the refugees and the looters. Like, by this, by the time we were getting out, that narrative had already started of, you know, here come just, like, this horde of rapists and murderers and, like, scary black people. Um, so the security on the buses when you could get on and off was really, really tight. And they wouldn't tell you where you were going. So by the time we were on the road, like, they were already closing down shelters. So, you know, you'd get, like, you'd think you were going to Houston, but by the time you got to Houston, you had to go to Abilene. You thought you were in Abilene, you'd be in Nevada. Like, people ended up super far away. So when the buses finally came, also, they didn't tell you where you were going. And it stopped for gas outside Brobridge, Louisiana, which is really close to Lafayette. And so we just got off at the gas station and hid and didn't get back on. Because we were like, they're not going to let us off anywhere if I end up in California. Like, I can't afford a flight back. Did you, did you actually hide? Like, yeah. Where did you hide? We hid behind the gas station, behind the bathrooms. Because they, like, came looking for everybody. Terry made it from the gas station to her aunt's house in Lafayette. A lot of other family was staying there, too. There were probably, like, 15 people in this house. And that was true of a lot of houses in Baton Rouge and Lafayette at the time, that, you know, people from South Louisiana don't stray far from home. And so everybody went by their one auntie, and it sucked. But there was just nothing to do, and nobody had any money because nobody was working. And it was just horrendous and boring. Like, my mom and my aunt just, like, aggressively played Scrabble for hours. So Terry came back to New Orleans before the rest of her family, about three months after the storm. She picked up her old job in the French Quarter. Before the storm, I worked as a bike delivery person at a pizza restaurant, and I just went back. Um, most of the staff came back. If you were working service industry in the Quarter right after the storm, you were making bank, because the Quarter was one of the only places that was still alive. It was, um, but most people still didn't have, people who were able to come home still didn't have kitchens or refrigerators but also in the quarter like a lot of the people in town at that point were relief workers they were FEMA workers they were construction people a lot of single middle class or upwardly mobile working class men who like to give money to cute girls on a bike so for me like I worked double shifts and I made bank like I did really really well in retrospect I probably could have like saved some of that or something But, oh well. What did you spend the money on? Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Um, (laughs) Clothes. I got lots of clothes. Went on road trips. Like, just very irresponsible stuff. Definitely in, like, the two years after the storm, I was lashing out at all things at all times, but not knowing why. Like, I was just really distraught. Like, we used to go to New Orleans East and, and, like, light cars on fire. Because you could do that, because we lived in like a post-apocalyptic Mad Max world. Like, you could do that. It was during this chaotic time that Terry got together with Tony, who's now her husband. He was also working bike delivery in the quarter. I was like, ooh, who's that hot guy who works at Verdi Mart? 
And I probably rode 200 miles out of my way trying to be like, hey, look at me. And then one day I um, had had a couple of shift beers when I got off work and I went into Verde Mart and I grabbed his butt. And I was like, you can touch mine back. Let's move this forward. And then we got married. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're adults. We got married in 2008. Okay. Um, so I just want to make sure I, when, when you tell the story of when you, even before the storm and after the storm, you know, you're enjoying yourself, you're partying, you're, you know, being young in New Orleans, like when did, did the way you were spending money and the way you were kind of partying, when did that shift? Um, I think for me that shifted with having kids, um, because all of a sudden there were like people who had to like also eat they don't tell you about that when you have them. Like, you just think they're self-sustaining, but they are not. They basically eat money. Um, so my son was born in 2008, and um, everyone was really excited that we had a baby and stuff. But uh, a cousin of mine said recently, like, you realize that part of the reason everybody was so excited about Harlan is because there were, there were no babies. There were no babies. Like, they're, you didn't see them in grocery stores. You didn't see them waiting to get on the bus because there was no school. Like, and by, I mean, by that point, like, it had started again, but most, so few people would have brought... I wouldn't have brought my children to New Orleans in 2008 if I had any other choice. When you got pregnant, did you think about leaving? No. Definitely not. Um, I mean, my... Everybody's here. Like, my whole family's here. Like, where... Where would you go? Their son Harland is seven now. And Terry and Tony have had two more kids. Their daughter, Lolly Mae, who's five, and the baby, Booker Bird, who's just over a year old. Tony's working making costumes for parades in New Orleans. Terry's got her adjunct position at Dillard. She also has a second job writing questions for a quiz bowl trivia league for historically black colleges. Do you need the only seven-letter word in the English language with five vowels? I got you. It's Sequoia. I didn't know that. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So you you have two jobs, three children. That's a lot. Yeah. That's why it's good to get to live with your folks. Yes, I will begrudgingly admit that. Terry and Tony are doing okay financially. Terry says when she was still in school, she relied on Medicaid to cover her medical bills during her last pregnancy. But she and Tony were able to buy the house across the street from her parents' house. She showed me how they're slowly working to fix it up. The older woman who lived here before Katrina never came back and wanted to sell. I got a deal. I feel guilty saying what my mortgage is because people are like, what? But our mortgage is $400 a month. When I think about kind of the big details of your life and what what was happening in your life 10 years ago and where you are now, it feels like it's been kind of a narrative of, of progress for you or at least of kind of digging in, growing up and building something. I'm really, really happy with my life, and I don't know that my life would be what it is if the world hadn't been a race, like if I didn't have this like kind of clean slate, um, especially with the way like I was right around the storm. If I hadn't had the storm to like allow my kind of like weird adolescent destruction to be socially structured and socially acceptable in some way, like if I had been doing the exact same shit in Peoria, like the story would be very different. You know what I mean? Like this, like it wouldn't be okay, but I get to be forgiven for a lot of things because of this huge external force. And so I'm, like, happy for that. And, like, I, I appreciate that. 
but progress is more complicated. And I think, I think too, like as an individual, and I think most New Orleanians will also like recognize that like we have made progress. Like we were not perfect before the storm by any means. Like we had a literacy rate that was comparable to countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Like we are not, we have, we, we are not a great city. We had a horrible and continue to have a horrible record of policing and corruption. Um, we are in lots of ways a poster child. Before the storm, we were a poster child of the urban future gone wrong. And I'm not saying that like change isn't necessarily a good thing because a lot of the change we had had to be progress because we were so messed up, like we were so low. But progress and change comes at a cost. And I think in the narratives of, of progress that are told by outsiders, there's not an appreciation for what we've lost in order to make this progress. You know what I mean? Like, so there used to be this lady who, she moved out last year. She got an apartment uptown, Miss Celeste. And she sold pralines and she would walk down the street and she worked at Dillard in the cafeteria and she lived down on the street, Claremont. And she is like the quintessential example of a dying breed of New Orleans lady. So she's um, she's like mid-tone, like caramel colored. She's really short and like squat. Like she's a, like a type. They are like they are like a type of person. Um, but she walks down the street, says, hey, baby. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you mama? And just goes on and on so loud. Like the woman has no inside voice. Like progress kills that like we are she is the last of a dying breed of person and we will never get them back that stuff's erased and i don't know i'm not sure if fancy kale and bike lanes are worth that even though i love kale and i love bike lanes I'm not sure if it's worth that, and I'm not comfortable with saying we've made progress without remembering what that was built on top of. What about the anniversary are you not looking forward to? I'm really not looking forward to media coverage, and I know I'm saying that into a microphone, so I know it's, like, weird, but um, I'm really not looking forward to half-page think pieces that only delve into the surface and are like designed to like like these like these pathos inducing things that make us like feel feelings and then allow us to forget because we haven't forgotten we don't have the privilege of forgetting like it's etched into our physical bodies it's etched into our spaces like it's there is no forgetting and I'm really really hesitant about outsiders shaping memory in the work that you're doing. I hope that when you're telling our stories, you're making sure that people know that, like, our stories are our individual stories and collectively, like, they can begin to point to, like, a collective truth. Like, our particulars can begin to make up a universal, but there is no single story of the storm. And as soon as, as, soon as you start telling a single story, you're silencing somebody, and that's really dangerous. So don't do it. That's why we're bringing you five episodes in a series called In New Orleans. You'll meet five people and hear their individual stories, not just about the storm, but about what's happened since. Running for political office, finalizing adoptions, starting businesses, mourning a mother. Look for all five episodes this week in your podcast feed or at deathsexmoney.org slash in New Orleans. (laughs) 
Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Botin, James Ramsey, Rachel Aronoff, and Benjamin Franklin. Special thanks to Anna Hyatt, Zoe Azule, Stephanie Billman, David Herman, Rick Kwan, Andrew Dunn, and Joe Plord. Rush Jago took beautiful pictures for us that are at deathsexmoney.org slash in New Orleans. Lane Kaplan-Levinson reported for us in New Orleans and introduced us to Terry. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music, and this is the Outerboro Brass Band performing it. Thanks to band members Jeff Pierce, Scott Bourgeois, Rick Faulkner, Joe Scataza, and Jason Isaac. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. It helps other people find us in the iTunes charts. Terry says one of her friends calls Katrina the gift that keeps on giving in the way that it keeps messing with your everyday routines. Terry still hasn't gotten used to the idea that the corner store in her neighborhood just isn't there anymore. I never grew up knowing how to make groceries. Like I never, I never learned how to go to a grocery store and purchase food for a week. So like every day when we're in this house, I'm like, God damn it, we need milk. We have to actually go somewhere? Like, fuck you, Katrina! I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.